This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an IHS market podcast focused on all topics on the intersection of finance and energy. This is Hill Baden here today with Coralie Lorenzen, who is a senior director within our Climate and Sustainability Group, sitting in Europe today with a, a scarf and long sleeves as, as I speak to her from Houston in a, in a short sleeve. So it's, it looks like you're still experiencing some winter. Yeah, it's been a long, long winter indeed, um, Hill. We, we've been very cold, especially this month of May in London. It's sort of rained every day. Um, it's been cold every day. So uh, really looking forward to summer. Hopefully, I've been told it's this week, so we're keeping our fingers <laughs> Well, I'm sure it will be uh, welcome when it arrives. So th- those of us in Houston are, are, are holding hands and bracing for our summer uh, because it's... It, We've had cool and rain over the past week or so, but but we know the temperatures and that oppressive humidity will be here very soon. So so today we are here actually at uh, when I spoke with Laurent maybe a month ago on the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, for a prior podcast. He recommended my reaching out to you to speak to you about the uh, the European carbon border adjustment mechanism work that you've been doing that that's really looking, uh, I guess, you know, and, and I'd like you to kind of explain some of the background here, but the, the carbon border adjustment mechanism or, or CBAM, uh, as it's uh, affectionately known and will probably be referred to uh, on the remainder of this call, is really a, a, a tax on, on carbon that, that is used to or, or will be used to make, uh, um, I suppose, low carbon uh, products more competitive uh, within a, a greening uh, economy, and Europe seems to be the vanguard of this. Could, could you describe a little bit of the, the, the research that you've done? And I think we're heading into an important meeting over the next couple of months in Europe that, that will really set the groundwork for this, uh, what is described as a Herculean task in your research. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, it's really interesting that the, the genesis of this is that Europe now is aiming to be net zero carbon. So this is really important. Um, last year, just before COVID hit, Europe set itself on a course to have net zero emissions by 2050. So, you're, you know, really big challenge, big ambition. To deliver this, it also uh, decided to increase its 2030 climate target. So, before its emissions reductions target for Europe was minus 40%, right, compared to 1990 levels. So, you know, quite a significant chunk. Mm-hmm. Now Europe hopes to do at least 55%. So, you know, a, a 15% or percentage point bump. So, you know, higher level. And as part of that, Europe recognizes that it's going to have to decarbonize industry. Up until now, Europe has decarbonized in the way that many geographies have decarbonized. It's reduced emissions or emissions intensity in its power sector. Lots of renewables, maybe some energy efficiency, but it hasn't done much for industrials. So, you know, the sectors that produce, um, you know, heavy industry, steel, cement, um, pulp and paper, chemicals, all these sectors, they've pretty, you know, it's been business as usual for them, right? Whereas the power sector has transformed, you know, these guys, it's, you know, of course, 
things have changed. Maybe the cost of energy is a bit higher, maybe, you know, def different changes. But in terms of, of climate focus, not so much. And so now that Europe has a 2050 target, these guys, the industrial sectors, you know, they need to be part of the effort. You know, they need to join in and they need to contribute. It's really imperative. So because of this, Europe recognizes that they're, they're going to need to invest. And, you know, these are capital intensive investments and they're going to have to make these investments. And they might find that other geographies are not placing the same requirements on emissions reductions. And so Europe participants or European industries will be making investments that no one else is making and therefore mm -hmm. they're you know, carrying costs that no one else is carrying, and therefore the competitiveness of their products is affected. And what's really important is that Europe really wants to decarbonize, but it's very clear that it's not doing that at the expense of industrial economic activity and jobs. And I know, you know, in the US, jobs is really front and center, right? Any conversation um, about any policy initiative, you know, the first point is, right, jobs. What about jobs? You know, if, if, if we make this, this change, if we introduce this policy, what does it do to jobs? In Europe, at least, the whole decarbonization story has been less focused on the economic impact and the jobs impact. But because now the step, you know, that we need to climb is so high, then really economic activity and jobs are really front and center. And people tend to forget that because they think, you know, Europe is full of idealists who are very focused on the environment and, and you know, overly willing to carry costs. And, you know, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the mm -hmm. coin is that Europe wants to build an industry that's competitive globally. And it thinks that actually creating an industry that is a decarbonized or masters decarbonized technologies is going to be a really good winning economic, you know, bet. And so, so where, you know, that's, where, yeah, sorry, that's that's the, the context. Where, where are we today? So, so, so you mentioned that we're trying to, to move from 99, 1990 levels by what was 40% and is now a 55% reduction in, uh, in, in emissions. How much progress do we make from 1990 to 2021? So we're, we're we're not far actually from minus 40%. We're, wow. I think, just over 35%, something like that. So, you know, we're not, we're, we've, we've made quite a bit of headway so far. And that was also the rationale, right? The rationale was we're, we're, we've done so much, we're already this far. Let's, you know, let's push ourselves some more. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've still got 20 percentage points to go. So, you know, quite a bit, bit a big ask. And was that 2020 numbers that is that benefited by the pandemic? That, that no, I think no, that's not. No, no, we don't have 2020 numbers. I think that's 2019. I need to check to give you a, an exact number, but I think that's roughly the order of magnitude. But still, that I mean, that that's great progress, you know. And, and in a sense, it sounds like that the change is happening with momentum rather than oh gosh, we're so far behind the eight ball. We may, we may as well increase our objective. And mm. see if that rallies us. So that seems like a pretty good place to be. You know, climate is really big focus in Europe. There's a lot that's been done. Um, that, you know, there's a lot more that could be done, and I think that's what we're expecting to see in, in the in the proposal. You know, you were mentioning um, the European Commission is going to make a big proposal mid July. Um, mm. 
And, and as part of that, there'll be this, this carbon border adjustment mechanism, so the CBAM, but there'll be other things. There'll be a discussion about how can we increase the role of renewables um, in energy demand, so not just in power, but also in transport and heating. Um, there'll be discussions about energy efficiency, because that's that's an area where Europe isn't you know, living up to its targets. And, um, and there'll be other discussions. Um, energy taxation is one of them, also linked to this whole you know, discussion. So yes, definitely Europe is aiming to, you know, push forward and, and knows that actually the hard part starts now effectively. Sure. And do you view this as an energy initiative or, or a climate initiative? They, they seem to be increasingly conflated that yes. climate policy is energy policy and energy policy is climate policy. So interesting. I mean, I, I view this as a climate initiative and this is the way it's packaged this time, but the previous sort of upheaval of energy and climate laws was called the climate and energy package. So it, you're okay. very, it was, you know, it, it it was seen as, as you know, two sides of one coin to use that expression again, but definitely, you know, the, the consumption of energy is front and center and, you know, how that changes, right? Um, how much energy we consume and where does this energy come from? That's the crux of it. And when we're looking at those that are that are leading the, uh, I, I guess, the initiative from the perspective of Europe, wh which states or which countries are really driving this and where might be the, the lagging states who are waiting for clarity before they embrace it? Yeah, so historically there's been a divide between, and you know, this is very rough and very schematic, but there's been a divide between maybe Western Europe being more at the forefront of, you know, this type of initiative and, and Eastern Europe being a little bit more cautious, um, a little bit more concerned about cost, about economic impact, about social implications, you know. Um, certainly a country like Germany is one of Europe's leaders in terms of climate initiatives. You know, Germany is by far the country that's added most renewables in the power sector and which is targeting the most addition of renewables going forward. They have an election coming up in September and you know, very widely it's expected that the Green Party you know, is, is gonna come out on top and at least be part mm -hmm. of the coalition, so set the agenda very much. The UK in recent years has come out as one of those countries that's really pushing a, a very strong climate agenda. Um, it has a higher uh, target for emissions reduction than the EU does. Uh, for 2030, and it shares the net zero target for 2050. You know, and and the the UK, like the EU, really wants to build a very strong industrial base in some of the regions in the north of England. You know, that that will serve this climate. You know, or that will benefit from the this climate focus. And so the UK is part of this European initiative. So the UK is now outside of the European Union. The um, right. initiative is really Europe as in the European Union, which has set itself the target of minus 55%. The UK is no longer you know, in that group, but you know, in terms of climate focus, shares the, the, the same you know, ambition uh, for 2050 and certainly the same ideas as to how to get there. So you know, despite Brexit, that's one of the areas where there's a lot of alignment that remains between the EU and the UK. Okay, so it's safe to look at this in, in kind of a, is it, is it a classical? I mean, I don't know if that's classical Europe or, or how to describe it, but, but it it's would be EU plus UK. Yeah, we describe it as, so in our analysis, we have EU plus three. And so one of the three is the UK, another one is Norway, which really similarly saying, you know, shares the same climate focus. And then, and then Switzerland, you know, smaller country, you know, smaller global impact, but similar focus as well. Okay. And, and you said that the, the some of the Eastern European countries are, are maybe 
lagging enthusiasm relative to, to, to Western. Is that is there a higher industrial base in Eastern Europe with Western Europe more service uh, oriented economy that has less emissions to, to, to concern themselves with in terms of job creation? Yeah, there, there's there's a little bit of that, certainly. And then there's a bit also about history and geography, which is the fact that Eastern Europe is very dependent on coal. Historically, mm -hmm. it's been very dependent on coal. Coal is, you know, clearly identified as having no future in Europe. There's a lot of pressure to close the coal fleet as much as possible. You know, certain countries of Eastern Europe are finding that more difficult than others. They're more reliant on coal. They maybe have less alternatives. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's something that they've, you know, haven't been very enthusiastic about and understandably. Um, I think Eastern Europe as well, when you look at the energy transition and you look at the opportunities for new fuels and new technologies, Eastern Europe, except for Poland, doesn't have access to the sea. So there yeah. isn't the offshore wind potential that you would find, you know, the UK, huge offshore wind potential, Germany, France, Norway, all of these countries are, are looking at offshore wind and offshore wind is, is not just the key to you know, decarbonizing power. It's also the key of, to producing hydrogen, you know, and, and, right. and, and then that, you know, that feeds into industrial decarbonization. In some countries, it could feed into some parts of transport as well. So, you know, that those are really important resources to have. Eastern Europe, you know, doesn't have that. So I think it's, you know, all countries are not created equal, certainly. And, and everyone's got this target that they almost, you know, go forth um, towards, but, mm -hmm. you know, some countries will have a harder time. And it's recognized within the EU, you know, there are funds that are set aside and their support, but, um, you know, nevertheless, that that's still, it's still a difficult ambition. And so what are the, if, if we look, you know, I guess within some of the countries, what are the sectors that, that, that are most impacted or potentially most impacted by this, so that it's not necessarily an energy an energy initiative, and, and I think some of the raw materials, crude yep. oil, natural gas, and others are, are not part of the, the conversation in the way that cement and steel might be. Yeah, so if you look at the sector, so this is where we're, you know, we have to get a little bit into the nitty gritty of, of this proposal, and, and it's hugely technical. Um, and my guess is as we go, you know, we see the first proposal from the Commission, it'll get even more technical. But um, I think what the EU is proposing is to let's start small, you know, pick mm -hmm. a few sectors, apply a carbon border adjustment mechanism. So a carbon tax, you know, if you want to call it that to those sectors and then, you know, see how it goes and then grow that. Right. And so the sectors that the EU is looking at is the sectors that are already included in the European um, trading scheme. So Europe's carbon markets. Um, so those are um, energy intensive sectors that, you know, are most, um, you know, create most emissions in Europe. And the sectors that are being discussed first and foremost is exactly what you said. So steel and cement, you know, those look like pretty sure bets. Um, fertilizer, that's that's a sector that comes okay. up. Uh, power sector, perhaps Europe, the European Union doesn't import much power, but it does a little bit. So that that could be included uh, as well. So, you know, the idea is let's pick a few sectors, you know, let's let's start the C-band with that and then see how we go along and hopefully expand it. That That's the idea. How about the, the import of renewable energy technologies that, that, that if I am importing solar or wind kit that was made with coal fired generation in another part of the world, is that, a, a, is that going to be meaningfully impacted or could it be? 
Not initially, and I would think not for a bit. Um, initially, it's really those sectors that are in the ETS, so Europe's carbon market. So it's really, you know, in the ETS, you've got cement, steel, you've got pulp and paper, ceramics, mm. you've got glass, you've got lime production, you know, this sort of stuff. So these, you know, this is the short list because for this mechanism to be introduced, it needs to be WTO compliant, right? So it needs to comply with international trade rules. And that means that the EU cannot be placing a burden on imported products that is not placed internally. You must treat, you know, your own products and imported products the same. That's sort of the basis rule. So if if these sectors are in the carbon market, they are subject to a cost of carbon, then the EU's reasoning is that legitimately we could ask importers of these products to also be subject to a cost of carbon that's similar, and then the WTO, you know, should find that that's okay. And how are the the, the heads of these industries participating in the conversation? That there was a the, the great quote I think in the 2008 kind of addressing of all the the, the banking issues that, that if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. Um, I assume that, that, that the heads of the cement industries and steel or whatever are active participants in here as not to be on the proverbial menu. Exactly. No, no, that's that's exactly right. I think, you know, all of these sectors are sectors that so far have not been very much pressured by the Europe's carbon market to reduce their emissions, but nevertheless are, you know, operate in global markets, very competitive global markets. So, you know, they are pressured in, in many other ways. Um, they have seen the cost of carbon increase very strongly in the ETS recently, and they're very concerned about, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the investment that they need to deliver you know, to get to net zero emissions. So what they're saying is, okay, you know, we'll, we'll play ball. You know, we understand we must um, reduce emissions and we understand that having these technologies is a way of, of, of future proofing our business, you know, it's good, but you know, we're, we're going to need some help here. And so the CBAM is, is part of that help, which is to say, you know, there can be no unfair competition. If we have a cost, then people who are importing into the EU, they must have a similar cost. So that's the CBAM. They're also saying historically they've received free allocation as part of the, um, of the ETS. And they're saying, well, we want to continue to receive that free allocation. And that free allocation is going to help us invest. And this is where I would think there's going to be a lot of disagreements because the European Commission and, you know, some um, EU representatives, they've made it clear that actually free allocation was there to preserve against carbon leakage, you know, which is the fact that you're placed at a disadvantage if you've got a carbon cost. But now that there's a CBAM, you know, everyone's going to get the carbon cost. They shouldn't be getting the free allocation. And free um, allocation, sorry, can you describe that uh, a little bit more? Yeah, so, so sorry, at, at the end of every year, at the end of every compliance year, everyone who's in the carbon market must hand in a certain number of allowances that matches whatever they've emitted, right? So you emit one ton, you hand in an allowance, you know, dead simple. And in the past, most of these industrial sectors, because they have had a carbon cost and there was no CBAM, so, you know, it was an additional cost compared to what a producer in the US or China or South Africa would have had, they also had free allocation so that this problem of competitiveness would not be a problem. Um, so they would receive this free allocation and most of their emissions would be covered. In the last few years, it's been you know, slightly less and less. And the idea is that once the CBAM is introduced, there is no more free allocation. And so there, you know, 
they they view that as being on the menu, as you were saying. Mm-hmm. Um, the, these sectors they want to keep, at least for what they've called a transitional period, their free allocation, um, to be able to, you know, have pots of money to invest from, really. And how are these guys or these people, these heads of industry, uh, wrestling with the job, uh, I'll call it protection or creation issue that, that, you know, we've talked before on this podcast that policy is very good at protecting jobs. It's finds a little bit more difficult creating jobs. Mm. Um, and, and given all of the economic uh, concerns that any policymaker or country leader has, is industry seeing this as a job creator for industries outside of, say, cement and steel or for job creation within that, uh, you know, what happens to that steel worker or cement maker? Well, I think I think the hope at this stage is to maintain, you know, at the very least, the level of industrial activity in Europe and to preserve those jobs. Um, and then the hope is that if Europe creates a a technological understanding or experience with these new, you know, low carbon technologies, then it can export them possibly. And, you know, certainly that's the feeling with hydrogen. Um, Mm -hmm. If if you look back, um, Germany was one of those countries where, you know, the the, the production of solar panels emerged. Uh, And that was because uh, Germany had put in place all of these incentives so that people were installing them, you know, you and me in our homes, people on on commercial sites or on industrial sites. And then because of the international competition, you know, that that manufacturing went away. And and now you've got other countries, other geographies that, you know, will sell solar panels to the world. The idea Europe now really wants to build on this, uh, you know, energy transition dynamic to maybe create uh, an expertise in hydrogen that it can export. And I think, you know, in a sense, if you look at offshore wind, um, mm-hmm. that's one of the sectors that Europe is thinking, right, well, we can we can use that as a template. We can, you know, even build on that, go further and, and continue, of course, with offshore wind as well, to be one of those regions where we have, we have know-how, um, we have industry leaders, we have the technology, you know, that we can offer to the world. And how's the world looking at all that? I mean, it just, you know, you, you and I have talked before, and, I, and again, the title of your paper had the words uh, Herculean task in there. I mean, is is the international world looking at, at your, clearly the, 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 the world shares a low carbon ambition, almost without exception. You know, it, are, are people watching this saying, good luck to you, I don't know how you're gonna pull this off, or, or are people saying, good luck to you, we wanna get on board, or good luck to you, we want to take the industry that, uh, you know, we, we will find business outside of the European market because this carbon task is going to make you uncompetitive. So I mean, it's interesting because it's exactly as you said, I think, you know, some of my colleagues were saying it's about three quarters of all of the world's emissions are in geographies which have made a net zero carbon commitment, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, 75% of, of all of the places or all of the emissions um, are in a net zero carbon, you know, ambition. At the same time, the, the reaction to Europe's CBAM has been pretty unanimous, and um, every trade partner has 
pretty much, you know, frowned and said, mm, I, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> I, and so for a variety of reasons, right, you've got, I mean, and actually maybe to the, with the exception of the UK. So this is really quite interesting. Uh, although you would assume the UK having in place similar policies, you know, it's almost a mirror of what Europe is doing, you know, maybe slightly differences here and there. But so the UK wouldn't really be impacted by the CDAM. But whether you look at countries like like Russia or um, if you look at China or Brazil or the U.S., everyone, you know, everyone's reaction has been, oh, are you are you sure? Because this, you know, <laughs> this looks like protectionism to me. Um, it, you know, this looks like you're going to take advantage of us. Um, and and a lot of, you know, countries have, have made this really interesting point. Um, they've said, uh, you know, you're placing us at a disadvantage. You're asking us to. Uh, you're asking our industry to be at the same level of decarbonization as yours. Right. And we're not at the same level of development as you, but you're asking this of us. And that, you know, that feels pretty unfair. And, you know, it's an interesting comment because it's a comment that's sort of enshrined in the UN climate negotiations. So there's this um, sort of lingo that's called common but differentiated responsibilities in the UN climate discussions, which effectively means we all share the same common responsibility to fix this. But actually, some of us are more responsible than others, right? And that just means that the developed world or, you know, maybe the OECD countries, these are countries that have emitted a lot as they were going through the industrial revolution, right. as they were, you know, developing. And so, you know, now we've gotten to the point where actually, you know, we need to stop, we need to reduce emissions growth and we need to go, you know, the other way. And so developing countries are saying, right, but we also need to achieve our development goals. You know, we need people to have access to, um, you know, clean waters and clean cities and we need people to have lights in their home and, you know, we may not be able to do this financially with low carbon technology. So, you know, it's up to you to carry the bulk of the effort and to support us if you want us to, you know, to, to match what you're doing. But so, you know, there has been this response, which I found really strong from what was, I think it was, they called themselves the basic country. So this is Brazil, South Africa, China, and India saying, hold on, this isn't in line with what we're, we're talking about in the UN negotiations. So that's pretty powerful. Because um, they're still on that developing area where, where they need. Yeah, they're still on that development path. Exactly. Okay. So, so then what, what do you see from kind of, if we're looking at, you know, does Europe end end up kind of going alone in this, or, or is it a uh, I don't know if this is the correct term, but but a, a rich country kind of bifurcation yeah. where where those who have already kind of moved from manufacturing to service economies can accept a CBAM type mentality, and there's a a, a split. Well, I think that's that's the big question. I think. The first question before this one is, can the EU actually introduce this? Because there is a scenario where this, you know, sort of petters out and it, and it sort of, you know, sort of whittles away because mm -hmm. the EU in itself struggles to agree on something that they want to introduce. Um, and so that's one outcome for the CBAM. If they do, if, if they do succeed, um, you know, that what you're describing is very possible, sort of a two, you know, two root world where, you know, there there's a part of the world that adopts the EU standard uh, and where decarbonization of industry 
becomes the norm. And then there, you know, there is some sort of carbon free trade in that area. Uh, and then in another part of the world, there's no focus on emissions. And by definition, these industries are, are more carbon intensive and, and possibly, you know, they trade amongst themselves. It, even if that were to happen, I think that would be just a question of timing and that mm -hmm. at some point there might be a convergence of the two. I think the fact that you've got three quarters of the emissions, you know, in geographies that are focused on decarbonization means that, you know, we all know the direction of travel. It's a question of how fast. And definitely there will be some countries that will be running and some countries that will be walking towards that target. But eventually, I think it does make sense. Um, the developing world has, unfortunately, more to lose at climate change and the impacts of climate change. And adaptation would be, you know, or will be quite costly. So I think it's, it's going to be much more a question about transfer of technology, supporting yeah. developing countries. And, and that's all part of the, you know, climate negotiations that we'll see in Glasgow. And the Europe has said, you know, whatever funds they raise with this instrument, they're quite happy to use it internally, but some part of it will be dedicated for support in other geographies. They've also said um, least developed countries would not be impacted. Although, I, I you know, I don't think Vanuatu is a big steel exporter, so I don't know that that's, you know... <laughs> makes a huge difference to the outcome right. but yeah so eventually my view is that we're all going to go you know we're all going to travel this down the same road we're, we're just not going to do it at the same speed and as you were suggesting it might be that in the interim you know the the, the global market sort of segments a bit well and you mentioned just a, a second ago that the, the chance that this kind of flames out and, and, and doesn't move ahead that that to me would seem quite remote that that if I'm a policymaker, I mean, this is increasingly talked about, right? That that I want a good CBAM before I want a perfect CBAM. Yes. And that e even if it is all sorts of, you know, imperfection and not perfect, I'm assuming we get something. Is that a fair assumption? Yes, I think. No, you're right. I, I agree. That is the fair assumption. There, there will be something. I'm just I was just maybe more thinking about whether that something will have a point. You know, it's gonna be, <laughs> it's gonna be really difficult to set the metrics, right? Yeah. So who do you exempt, right? Is it is it good enough setting a target? Is it good enough that you have um, certain policy measures, certain incentives, certain, you know, standards in place? You know, into how much detail does the EU go to evaluate, well, you're exempt and you're not? And then, you know, this isn't going to operate in a vacuum. The EU is going to look at, you know, the EU has negotiating agendas with every country in the world that spans, you know, dozens of topics and CBAM will be one of them. So how much will the other topics, you know, come in and interfere with the CBAM discussion? Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then, you know, how, how do you evaluate the emissions intensity of steel from another country? You know, how do you measure that? And how, you know, how does it work if someone says, well, you're, you're not doing it right. You know, you, you're not looking at the right numbers. You're not looking at the right metrics. You're overbilling me. You're underbilling him. You know, that all gets quite messy. And I think for Europe not to get bogged down in all of all of the disputes that you could see arising, they need to get a pretty good mechanism in place. Do you think that Europe will be creating that measurement or, or is that a, a government initiative or a private initiative or a combination of both? 
So yeah, I think a combination of both. I, I, I would think Europe would set the standards and then outsource the implementation and the verification to somebody else. But I think you know it's it's interesting because in a in a earlier part of my career, I spent a lot of time looking at the offset market um, for mm -hmm. the UETS. So something that was called the Clean Development Me Mechanism, the CDM. So CDM is is a similar, um, interestingly, approach or similar in, in, in initiative. Uh, it was that. Europe would allow emissions reductions from projects developed outside of Europe to count for compliance inside the EU's carbon market. And really one of the things that the CDM, you know, the, the CDM is, is now a, a shell of itself and it's a much smaller market. And at least in the European carbon market, you know, CDMs are not allowed anymore. Um, but one of the reasons was that all of the, you know, accounting of what is a valid quota or credit was really tough. And, you know, this is monitoring, verification and, and reporting. So MVR is really, you know, is, is, is the death of this sort of stuff because it's highly technical, it's highly complex. Um, you have to have good sources. There needs to be, there needs to be a willingness of both parties. So the EU and whatever the geography, you know, that's on the other side, they need to work together and they need to share information, share data, they need to have the same objectives. In the CDM, that wasn't the case. And in the CBAM, you can see that how that's not going to be the case. So, you know, the EU is going to have to navigate all of that. It's, it's a difficult. Yeah, I mean, th th this seems, uh, you know, we, we've mentioned the Herculean test, herding cats uh, also comes to mind as an image. Where are we? You know, I, I know there is a originally kind of a June timeline on some recommendations or a proposal, which I think has been pushed back to July. What should we be watching over the next couple of weeks in terms of better understanding the status and then from an implementation standpoint, when do we think there will actually be something in practice for us to work against? So the first step is exactly as you said, um, the European Commission will propose uh, for, or we'll make a proposal for a CBAM that will be mid-July. I think in the run-up to that, so in the next couple of months, we'll, we'll start to get some, you know, some leaks, some information, some people making some comments, possibly a draft, you know, coming out um, early. And then, so one, once that proposal is on the table, the way that it works is that the European Parliament takes it away, the European Council, which is um, the European ministers, really, so the representatives of member states, both of these institutions take it away and think about the proposal and think about what changes they'd like to make to that proposal. So both of them are, are working on about, you know, working on the on this on this proposal and then they come back. Once they come back, you know, everyone shares their proposal. And then we have what's called trilogue negotiations. So the three institutions, the Commission, Parliament, and the Council, they get together and they say, right, you know, we need to come to a compromise now. We need to do a little bit of horse trading. So, you know, let's see where the middle ground is. The last time the European uh, trading directive, so the carbon market rules, was reviewed, that was two and a half years, right, from the firing gun, which is the Commission's proposal, to an agreement. Mm -hmm. This is so much more complex <laughs> so i think my guess is two to three years you know before these three groups or which is the eu you know gets to an agreement and then a little bit of time before it's implemented just so that everything you know can be set in place i would be very surprised um if this is in place before 2025 
I know that there's a lot of discussion about 2023. That's because that's the date that Parliament has set. That's two years away. Parliament tends to be the greenest of, of you know, of the European institutions. You know, they want they want more. They're more ambitious. They, you know, sort of pushing the climate agenda as much as they want. I think two years to introduce this is really unlikely. So you say not before 2025, to, to put you on the spot, is that before 2030 or, or around the 25, 26? <laughs> well, yeah, 2025, 2026 is, is a, you know, as you were saying, if we have a bare bones CBAM, you know, that's, that's a reasonable expectation for that to be introduced. Okay, so, so, so things to be watching would, would be, you know, news around the summer and, and then, you know, maybe a slow burn for, for the next, call it three, yeah. three to four years. Yeah. Um, well, just, you know, what, one, what, one last question, and then it, it sounds like we, you know, I, I'd love to, to, to talk with you again about this as, as this kind of makes progress, but how, how does the, the, the average European citizen, do, do, do they, is anybody paying attention to the CBAM beyond people like you and me sitting in energy consultancies? <laughs> or or are, are they indifferent uh not aware it yeah it's it's not a consumer you know it's not in the newspapers it's not a consumer topic um it's definitely a political topic so right. you know people in the european parliament very very active already have had some proposals and some you know some thoughts about what the cbam should look like um it's it's not you know it's not in the newspapers at all it's not a you know, not part of the conversation and when it is, it's cleverly a border adjustment mechanism rather than something that might another word that might catch their attention. <laughs> exactly. No, it's I think it's it's a little bit too technical and it, and it wouldn't be the, the you know, the first piece of news. I think it, it will emerge in the summer, but there'll be other other topics that might catch, you know, the public's eye um, first. Sure. All right. Well, well, this has been great. It sounds like this is something that, that we need to, to, to watch more closely uh, th this summer uh, and really you know, Europe at the vanguard in terms of low carbon initiatives that, you know, could in a sense set the rule book for the rest of uh, for the rest of us uh, globally uh, as we move toward a more call it carbon friendly world. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We'll see. The summer will tell. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. And uh, we will uh, we will welcome you back uh, when when there's more more to report on this. Great. Well, that sounds great. Thank you so much, Hal. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Chloe. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com/energyblog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy Solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.